So encouraged by the presence of all of you this morning. We do have a good turnout this morning. I was kind of like John. I was thinking, oh, people might want to not want to brave the weather this morning, but very encouraged that you're here this morning. I'll be delivering the message this morning uh, in Larry's absence. We're going to be taking the lesson from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. 1 John 3, 19 through 24. Generally, and not too long ago when Larry was gone on a Wednesday night, I did a uh, a sort of a special study, and the emphasis was on justification, and we took uh, a lot of that lesson from 1 John chapter 1. I love 1 John, and I haven't preached from anything other than the first chapter before, and that is a crucial part for for us to understand what our walk as a Christian look looks like because it if you've ever had doubts about your fellowship with God read first John John provides us reassurance um, and just to give a little bit of background um, for first John there was a teaching a false teaching called Gnosticism that was making inroads into uh, the church at that time. And it was in its infancy, but there were already several sects from uh, Gnosticism that sort of branched out. But the one that was primarily, there were those who were of the teaching of the Pythagoreans and those of the Docetas, but the, the main gist of Gnosticism and the word gnosis, Gnosticism, means knowledge, knowing ones, And these knowing ones were asserting that flesh and spirit couldn't coexist. And therefore, there's no way that Jesus really came in the flesh. They said that he was just some sort of a spirit or ghost or mystique. He wasn't really um, flesh and blood. And John, of course, and we're not going to spend time going over all of the evidence that he provides for the fact that, no, Jesus did come as a man. He wasn't just some sort of a ghost. We handled him. We saw him. We heard him. Um, the evidence that he provides is, is convincing because John was a firsthand witness of him. And so he provides them that information disputing this, but they were teaching that Um, you could basically, since the spirit and the flesh were two different things, that the flesh was totally evil and spirit was good and those things couldn't coexist, that you could basically go and live like the devil, do whatever you want. It didn't matter because you can't sin. As a Christian, your special knowledge of Christ delivered you from any consequence of sin. So they were putting a great deal of emphasis on this sort of esoteric special knowledge that they had. And as a result, they were calling into question the Christians who were hearing this. They were questioning their own standing with God. And are they really in fellowship with God? And that's, you know, that's what the false teachers were doing at that time. They were calling that into question And John provides assurance. And you'll notice throughout the letters, he uses the word no. And that's the reason that he does that, because he's going to give them true knowledge, not the esoteric knowledge that the Gnostics were um, 
uh, teaching, but the true knowledge that comes from God. And this is how you measure, and he provides some very tangible, measurable things that we can gauge our fellowship with God. And the reason I wanted to focus on these verses in chapter 3 is because it, it talks about the heart that condemns us. And I think this is a direct uh, result of the teaching that was affecting them, that they were doubting their own walk and they were doubting you know, their fellowship with God and their hearts were condemning them in this. They're like, are we really in fellowship? And I want to suggest to you that not only does that sort of teaching affect our view of our fellowship with God, but there's, there's a number of things. But we're going to focus in on one aspect of that this morning. But it is very clear, anybody who has spent any time in the scriptures at all, that God is aiming for the hearts of man and woman. The Bible says that man looks at the outward... But God looks at the heart. The fact is, what we see when we look at each other is only a small percentage of what we really are. There are thoughts and emotions and struggles and impulses and currents going on in our hearts all the time, most of which we never share. And here's... A troubling part of that. Not only can we not share everything that's going on in our hearts, we don't know and understand and trust everything that's going on in our hearts either. Jeremiah, talk, in talking about the heart of man, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We can't totally understand what's going on in our hearts. And so John is going to address that. Our hearts play head games with us, excusing our own wrongdoing here, falsely blaming others there. Then they flip the script and blame us and shame us when we didn't do anything wrong and excuse the one who did clearly do something wrong. And our heart's pendulum from puffing us up with pride to battering us with feelings of worthlessness and then back again. It's kind of a roller coaster ride. And I'm talking about sort of the feelings of the heart. If we're just, you know, our environment is the thing that dictates that and our heart is reacting to that. And it can accuse us wrongly in that. And so... What's the answer to that? And John provides that. All the while, our hearts whisper lies about God. He's not faithful. He doesn't love you. He has abandoned you. Our hearts can't always be trusted, but it's the heart where God wants to do his deepest work in us. We often ask God to change something about our circumstances. But God says, no, I want to change something about your heart. John, in writing this, I was reading one commentator um, who described, called him a spiritual cardiologist. 
One of the reasons that he wrote this letter was to assure believers' hearts that we can know, not just hope, not hope in the sense of a world, you know, hope in the sense of a worldly hope where, well, I hope it happens, not just that kind of hope or think, but know. And again, there's that word know, and he's playing, he's using that intentionally because of the Gnostics but know that we have eternal life. In the passage we're going to read, he writes to offer reassurance for the condemned heart. He doesn't want our hearts to stay in a place of condemnation, but he does acknowledge that there are times when any of one of us can struggle with a voice of condemnation that doesn't necessarily come from the outside it can be influenced by that but it comes from the inside and it comes from our heart verse 19 by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our heart condemns us God is greater than our heart and he knows everything and simply put he's saying that God is a greater judge than our hearts. Don't just rely on your hearts. Don't rely on your feelings about it. Let's take a look at what God says on the matter. And God is greater than our feelings, greater than what our hearts have decided to condemn us about. So John, the spiritual cardiologist, gives us reassurance for the condemned heart. Condemnation can come in many forms. But I want to focus on one of the most common and devastating byproducts of condemnation, and that is doubt. Because when our hearts feel condemned, we feel that God condemns us. It allows serious doubts to enter our hearts, personal doubts. I'm not talking about doubts about God, but where I stand with God. And these kinds of doubts aren't so much, like I said, doubts of the mind, whether God is and whether he exists, and, but, and if his word is true or if Jesus really is the Lord, but they're doubts of the heart and they hit on a deeply personal level. Does God really love me? Can he really forgive my sins? Am I really his beloved child? As John assures us we are in chapter 3, verse 1, am I really saved? We hear a lot about faith in the church, and rightly so. And, but we don't often hear much about doubt, and that can make us think that most believers never struggle with doubt in their hearts. And that can make our doubts feel all the more devastating when we experience them because surely no one else has them, and I shouldn't be having these doubts about my fellowship with God. Doubts can really do a number on us. So into this mix of condemnation and doubt, John, the spiritual cardiologist, speaks a reassuring word. Again, in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
God acknowledge, or John acknowledges that there may be times when our hearts condemn us. And sometimes that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. That's, we should be held in check and we should have honest examination of our lives and our walks with God. And that's when our hearts do condemn us. That doesn't mean just completely ignore that. But sometimes we can have an overactive condemnation of ourselves. There may be times when even the strongest believer is tempted to doubt God's love for him or her. It can be reassuring for our hearts just knowing that we're not the only ones who struggle with self-condemnation and doubts. John even includes himself in this number. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us. The well-known 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once wrote, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say, it must be too good to be true. This is where condemnation can foster doubts. We may not doubt the concept of God's goodness or his love, but when we look at our own failings and sins and shortcomings up close and personal, doubts can hit our hearts questioning how one could love someone such as me. And then those doubts can make us feel like we're not walking in the light, as he talks about in the opening chapter of this epistle, which then adds to our sense of condemnation, which then deepens our doubt that he could love us and be for us. Notice how John doesn't point to anything in our hearts to reassure us. He points to God. By this we reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows all things. You see, our hearts don't determine reality, even about ourselves. God does. If our heart says condemned, but God says saved, guess what? God wins. If our hearts say filthy, but God says forgiven, guess what? Again, God wins because God is greater than our hearts. There will be some whose faith in Christ will be shaky all their lives, whose hand will weakly cling to the Savior till their last dying breath. And on their deathbed, their hearts will fear that they are not saved. And then as they are warmly welcomed into glory, they will find that God is greater than their hearts. And Jesus is a great enough Savior to save even the one whose faith is weak and whose walk is stumbling. I used to visit an old brother 
um, when he was advanced in years, and I'd go over to Wexford Place and visit him. And he was he was a guy who early on he he was obedient to the gospel and walked the Christian walk for a while, but then he left. And I don't know why he left, but he said he left, and he lived the majority of his life in rebellion and disobedience. But as God allowed him time, he realized his situation before God, and he came back. He repented. Um, I remember at Vivian Road when he came forward, and this you know, feeble old man, and he was very advanced in age, and he came forward in tears and, and recognizing his need once again. And he strived to walk that walk again and truly return. And I remember visiting him at the home, and he would be very emotional about this. And he said, I just don't know, I don't believe that God has really forgiven me because I turned my back on him. That's the kind of heart that we're talking about, the heart that condemns. And that's really, we don't think it is, but that's an indictment of God when we do that. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's a very real thing that when we have our eyes on ourselves and our own performance and lack of performance, we can be hard on ourselves. And Spurgeon again writes, Often doubts will prevail. What a mercy it is that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, but his hold of you. What a sweet fact that it is not how you grasp his hand, but his grasp of yours that saves you. If you struggle with doubts... Let your heart be reassured. You're not alone. Many others struggle with that too. But trust in Jesus, even to save you from your doubts. John says he knows all things. Our weaknesses don't come as a surprise to God. But he has lavished us with such love by calling us his children and calling himself our father. And when we struggle with doubt, and our heart does condemn us, we can reassure our hearts hearts by taking our eyes off ourselves and putting our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, literally perfecter of our faith. But John's not done as our spiritual cardiologist. He wants to help unclog our faith arteries, if you will, so that instead of condemnation in our hearts, we might have confidence. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. John says it's better to have confidence in God than condemnation in ourselves. We often need to remind ourselves of how faithful and loving and good 
our Heavenly Father has been to us. When you think, I think sometimes we, people can have an image of God that he's sort of an ogre that's just looking for reasons to send you to hell. Every misstep, he's, he's keeping an eye on that. But I want to remind you, we don't have time to look at it, but remember Luke 15 and the prodigal son. That's our father, the father that's depicted in that story. And you remember the son who took his half of the inheritance and spent it all, wasted it on riotous living. He was out living like these Gnostics were claiming that you can live and still be in fellowship with God because it's your special knowledge that delivers you. But this son had gone off and he had blown his whole inheritance on that kind of living. And he found himself destitute and feeding hogs in a hog pen in a foreign land. And for a Jewish boy, that's as low as you could get, feeding swine. And in that desperate situation, he began to come to himself. He started talking to himself. And it's good to talk to yourself as long as we're not talking baby talk to ourselves and excusing our actions. He was talking sensibly to himself, and he was recognizing a servant in my father's house has it better than I do. I'm going to go back, and I'm not going to demand my position as a son. I just want a job. If you could just give me a job, that'd be the best thing in the world. And so he decides to go back, and you remember the story. As he is a great way off, what happened? His father saw him. Why? There isn't a parent who has had a wayward child that doesn't understand why. You're looking for them to come back. You're longing for them to come back. And that's our father. That's the father that we serve. He ran to his son and welcomed him back. Self-condemnation from our heart might seem like it's totally a statement about me. Because condemnation might seem like it makes me go all inward and hyper-examine myself and my own inadequacies. But condemnation, I want to point out also, is never just a statement about me. It's a statement about God, too. A statement about how I view God. Condemnation is leading me to believe lies about my Heavenly Father. He doesn't love me, though he's shown me time and time again that he does. Just look at his track record. He hasn't forgiven me, though I say Jesus' blood is more powerful than my sin. I don't deserve his love. Uh, Yeah, that's what grace is, right? undeserved kindness and mercy. So we need to remind our hearts of how great and gracious and loving and merciful our Heavenly Father is. You see, John in the opening chapter was trying to get them to see that, no, you can't go out and live like the devil and still be. You can't have fellowship, walk in darkness and have fellowship with God. But he was showing what that fellowship looks like. Do we walk perfectly? 
if we did, we wouldn't need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. That's the kind of we walk we do. But he wants us to advance in that walk and strive for it, but recognizing that we don't do it perfectly. That's why Jesus died. He can look at that effort and he can credit it just like he did with Abram, Abraham as righteousness. It's not righteousness, but it's an effort to walk in that direction. And God counts it. He treats me as if I were righteous because of that effort. And how can he do that? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But we can also kind of hyper-examine our walk and think, I'm not doing it perfectly. I'm not doing it as good as he or she is. And so I must be falling short. And that's how our hearts condemn us. But God doesn't write us off because of our failures and weaknesses any more than a loving parent writes off his or her child due to their failures and weaknesses. Our Heavenly Father is far, far more loving and patient and committed to us than any earthly father or mother could ever be. If we are trusting Christ as our Savior we can come with confidence that God accepts us fully and is ready to answer our prayers. Notice in verse 22, one of the benefits of unclogging our faith arteries is the impact on our prayers. Instead of dwelling on ourselves and our unworthiness, you know how those prayers go? Constantly in God's ears about forgive me for this, forgive me for this. And that's good. We should go to God and we should acknowledge our sin before him. But that's a self-inward kind of prayer. When we take our eyes off of ourselves and our self-condemnation all the time focused on that, and we redirect our eyes on God, then it has an impact on the way that we pray. We're not praying inward prayers about ourself and self-forgiveness and how we're just not adequate enough. Because again, that's an indictment of God. We don't believe that God truly has forgiven us and that Jesus' atoning sacrifice is powerful enough to cover my sins. Simply put, our change of perspective from self to God has a radical impact on our prayers and really has a radical impact on every aspect of our Christian walk. John tells us that there are things that we can do to reassure our hearts that we really do belong to him. And it's important that we don't misunderstood what he's saying here. But how we live does have an impact on the strength of our faith and our assurance. If we are living in disobedience, as he talks about in the first chapter, if we are walking in darkness, it will weaken our assurance for a good reason, because we're not even striving to walk in that fellowship. If we live in disobedience to the Lord, then there is a good reason for our hearts to condemn us in that. And if we live in obedience to the Lord... It will strengthen our assurance. And again, I'm not talking about perfect walking. None of us do that, but we're striving to do that. Constantly keeping ourselves in check and referring to his word 
and trying to walk in the guidance of his teaching. So is John contradicting Paul in, in this verse? Because Paul says that no flesh will be justified by works of the law. And here he's saying, keep the commandments. And it almost sounds like this is how you have assurance by keeping the commandments. Is that what he's saying? Not at all. What are the commandments that he's talking about? Is he talking about going back to the old law and keeping, keeping those commandments? Is that what he's making reference to? Well, we don't have to guess about it. He follows it up in verse 23. And this is his commandment. He talks about it as if it were a single commandment, but it's a dual commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Sounds kind of like love the Lord your God with all your, your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's that same idea. Believe on him and all these other things are going to fall in place. The law hangs on those two principles and that's why he lists these. We aren't saved by good works but we are saved for good works. And there is a vast difference in that concept. Obedience to the Lord strengthens our confidence and reassures our hearts that we do belong to him. And John lists the two important ways that we can obey the Lord's command. Number one, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This will always be the most important thing in the Christian life. It is the catalyst for everything. Believing in Jesus. And it's not just that watered down idea of belief uh, that so many would have you believe. That it's just merely a intellectual exercise. Yeah, I reckon he's the Christ. And then go off and do my own thing. That's not the idea. And it's not my intention to to unpack that whole concept, but understand what we're saying when we say believe. It's not just a verbal acknowledgement, but it, it involves our lives. It involves every aspect of our lives. Believing in the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the devil will always try to move us from faith in Christ. How do we obey God's command? Most importantly, thing is believe in Jesus. Jesus said the same thing in John 6, 29, when he said, this is the work of God that he calls belief a work, that you believe in him whom he sent. God's command for us is to believe in Jesus. And it's like commanding someone to eat food and drink water and breathe air. We die if we don't. As a teacher, when I teach or preach about Christ, if I get nothing else right, I want to get this one thing right. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that entails. And the one message I want to proclaim is Christ and Him crucified. The one person I want to point to is Christ. The one hope I desperately want to cling to and urge you to cling to is Christ. Because I believe with all my heart Jesus is enough. And only Jesus is enough.
Jesus is the Savior who saves us from the horrors of hell and for the glories of heaven. I believe God's word is true when it says that no one will ever be saved apart from Christ. And no one will ever be lost who has put their faith in Christ. Understanding what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Do you want to reassure your heart that you're walking in the truth and not a lie? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus' teaching. Believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Believe in Jesus' resurrection. Believe in Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. Believe in Jesus' soon coming return to the earth. And don't let anybody turn you from that belief. Because as long as you continue to walk in that, you have fellowship with the Father and you don't have to doubt it. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen when you leave this life. John says time and time again, you can know. That's a certainty. And the second part of this, quickly, love one another. I want to quickly, we're going to do the love one another stuff. No, that's an important part of this. When we talk about loving one another often, we do talk about that often. But what John is saying is that our hearts can find deep reassurance as we love one another, as we put into practice Jesus Christ in us. Jesus commanded it, and when we obey his command, it's evidence that he has gotten a hold of our hearts. When our hearts get clogged with condemnation and doubt, one of the best ways to get the spiritual blood circulating in our lives again is to love one another. When we love and what we're talking about, it's, it's not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It brings reassurance to our hearts that we belong to Christ. I think one reason loving one another brings reassurance to our hearts is because love is at the center of everything that God is about. John will write in the next chapter that God is love. You see, the air in the kingdom of heaven is pure love. The reason God sent his son and the reason Jesus came is that God so loved the world, not just loved the world, so loved the world. Giving his son for us is the measure of his love for us. And it is a gift that is precious beyond anything else and everything else we could imagine. Loving one another reassures us that we know him and belong to him and understand now our position and our security in him. And that has an impact on how we treat each other, how we care for each other, how, how we love each other and serve each other. Someone shared this fictional dialogue between God and an elder of a local church. I don't remember when I got this. Got it in an email. It was meant to be a funny thing, but I think it demonstrates something about how we look at this but it goes like this the lord asked 
the elder this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it to you that you please the people of your church? And he answered, honestly, it's a 9 or a 10. Then the Lord asked him, how important is it to you that you love the people of your church? And he had to admit that it was only about a three or a four because he was in a congregation that had some pretty unlovable people. The Lord said, you've got it backward. I didn't call you to please them. I called you to love them. You see, loving and pleasing aren't always the same thing. Love isn't word or talk. It's not sentimentality or niceness. You can't substitute niceness for love. Niceness is about pleasing others. If we're super nice, it's probably because we want people to like us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice. But if our motivation is just to be the nice guy, let's not, you know, uh, rock the boat at all. And I'm not suggesting that that should be our aim either. But I think you know what I'm aiming at here. It's, It's not that kind of love that he talks about. But love cares more about what's best for others. If these are the two things that represent an obedient life, believing in Jesus and loving one another, then we have a real window into the heart of God. These are his priorities. Not that there aren't other things important to God, but these are at the top of the list. And if we get these things right, we're probably going to get the other things right too. Not perfectly, But those will fall in place a lot easier if we have those two top buttons lined up. Let's end with an encouraging truth that John lays out in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. As we believe in Christ and seek to love others, we're never alone in that. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. It is a confirmation of our fellowship, an assurance to our condemned heart that we are in fellowship with with us. God didn't leave us alone to figure it all out. He gave his Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets. He equipped them fully to leave us the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit, his written word. And we can be assured that he abides in us as we strive to abide him. The more that we spend time in the word and practice his teachings... And put those things into our hearts and let them have the influence that they were intended to have. That will change the way that we look at ourselves, the way we look at each other, the way we look at God. Believe that. 
refuse condemnation, refuse to listen to those doubts and believe the Holy Spirit is working in you by his powerful word. Believe that he will work through you to love and minister to others. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God is a loving father who speaks reassurance to our hearts that sometimes condemn us. When you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, be assured that you aren't condemned. You are loved. And God wants us to walk in the freedom and confidence of that reassurance. If you haven't believed in Jesus and put your trust in him, I urge you not to wait another day. We live our lives in a little bubble of now. Yesterday is behind us. We'll never get it back. We'll never touch it again. Tomorrow will never be because you see our little bubble of now just moves forward. And we don't know how long that will continue to be. The only time that we have to act is now. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. If there is anyone here who needs to respond to his loving invitation, we invite you to do that as we stand and sing this song.